Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist. And I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now today I have a guest on the show. I am talking to George Mycock, who is the founder of MyoMinds, the mental health platform that works to improve knowledge and awareness of exercise and mental health. George is also a PhD researcher focusing on men's experiences with muscularity orientated issues like muscle dysmorphia, disordered eating and exercise addiction. And he has delivered presentations on these topics to a range of audiences. George also brings a lived experience perspective, having experienced muscle dysmorphia and the associated behaviors for a number of years. In the podcast today, George is going to be talking about his research into this fascinating area. He's going to be exploring muscularity orientated issues in men and the link between masculinity and these behaviors. He's going to talk about how the fitness community can feed into poor help-seeking behavior for this distress. He's going to explore the link between muscle dysmorphia and suicidal ideation. And he's going to explore the lack of help available for men with muscularity orientated issues and what needs to change. So this is a fascinating topic, something that definitely hasn't been talked about enough on this podcast at all. So I'm really looking forward to speaking with George today. Let's get to the conversation. Hi, George, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Hi, Harriet. Thank you for having me. So, George, can I firstly get you to introduce yourself, please, to the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is George. I am the founder of MyoMinds, which is a mental health organization that works in exerciser mental health. So we do stuff on body dysmorphia, on exercise addiction, and also eating disorders, and what we're going to be talking about today. And I'm also a PhD student at the University of Worcester, where I'm studying muscularity-orientated issues in men. Okay, fantastic. So, George, I know you came to all of this sort of area of work from your own personal experience. So would you be happy just to share a little bit about your story, please? Absolutely, yes. I feel like every time I answer this question, it varies from a two-minute answer to a 35-minute answer. So I'll try and go somewhere in the middle. (laughs) So my experience mostly started when I was about 13 years old, where I was obsessed with rugby and I was big into rugby. It was everything I spoke about, everything I did. And the reason I did that was because I felt like it was my responsibility as a young boy to show these behaviors that I'd been shown to be manly and be masculine. And I thought if I want to be a man, when I grow up, I have to be tough and strong. And, you know, playing rugby was something that I was shown from my dad to be a way of doing that. And then when I was 13, I broke my back. Um, I had a fracture in my spine that ended up kind of going all the way through when I took like a big impact in the middle of a game. And it meant that I was out for about a whole year. And I was told I couldn't play rugby anymore. And I was waiting for the surgery and then recovering from the surgery. So I was out from school. I had three hours of tutoring a week. And yeah, I just lay on my back and my bed was too soft even for the pain. So I had to just lie on the floor just for some kind of rigidity to keep my back still. I mean, yeah, it wasn't fun. And 
whilst I was in that situation and I'd lost this thing that I thought was my everything, I was very kind of, you know, I was struggling a lot. And a lot of people came to visit me. They would bring me food and I would kind of emotionally eat, if that's the term I'm going to use. And I was binge eating a lot and I ended up gaining a substantial amount of weight. And when I went back to school, my friends saw me in this much larger body and no one really bullied me, I would say, but you know, I would, they were 14 slash 15 at the time and no one's that subtle when they're 14 slash 15 and how they treat you differently. And I accounted all that to the fact that I gained weight and that I'd lost this respect that I felt like I'd gained from rugby and from those behaviors. So as soon as my doctor let me, I started trying to lose weight and I started exercising more and more. One of my friends had a gym in his shed. So I went there and started like lifting weights and going on his treadmill. And I started watching what I ate. I'm in inverted commas. You know, I started kind of trying to learn about food and learn about those things. And I basically just started restricting more and more. And I started to lose weight. And anyone who's listening to this podcast, who's had experience being in a in terms of BMI, which we know isn't always the most accurate thing. But in terms of BMI, I was in an obese body. Anyone who's got experience with that, if you lose weight, people don't care how you're doing that. And they just think it's great. Mm. And you get praised a lot for the fact that you're losing weight. And it got to the point where my surgeon who did the operation on my back kind of joked that I should come in and teach his other patients how to lose weight because I was doing it so fast he didn't know that I was, you know, at that point, pretty much starving myself and trying to exercise multiple times a day and, you know, doing these inherently disordered behaviors. But that was the level of encouragement I was getting. And as I read about exercise and read about nutrition and started to learn more and more about it, I came across the fitness industry and the quote unquote health and fitness industry, which is, I think, ironic from the rest of my story and the stuff that I do now. But yeah, I came across that world and that community online. And every man that I saw in that community, everyone that you know, my gender orientation aligned with, they all had big shoulders, big chests, big arms, veins, six pack. They were all very muscular. So I, you know, somewhere along the line, internalized that that's what I should be as well. If I want to be you know, if I want to be a success in this world that I've decided to go down and this world that's bringing me respect and praise, then I need to go down that path. So I started eating more and I started weightlifting more and more. And the problem was that these behaviors that I was doing were probably more accepted than the restrictive behaviors and the kind of overly cardiovascular stuff I was doing, especially when I was in a thinner body. So people saw me as trying to gain weight. People saw me doing what I was, was calling the bulk and cut diet that people might know about. People saw me having cheat meals and cheat days. And it was all under the guise of, you know, this is what these guys with big arms and big shoulders do. So it must be healthy because they're muscular. And the problem with it was that the underlying reasons as to why I was doing it were just as problematic as when I was doing my kind of thinness orientated behaviors. And a big kind of streaking, I guess, yeah, a big streak throughout this whole process was that I felt like these behaviors gained me these kind of man points, I suppose. There was, you know, all these people in the fitness industry and fitness world spoke about how you have to be man enough to do these things. And you have to, you're more of a man, you're more masculine if you can have big arms, if you can endure this really difficult set, if you can lift more weight, if you can do these things, you're dominant and you're these things, these things that I inherently felt like I wasn't and that I needed to be. You know, I've always been 
very emotional and I'll probably cry at some point during this podcast because I normally do. And, you know, I just became so engulfed in the fact that I wasn't what I was supposed to be. And these behaviors helped me feel like I was. The problem was that these behaviors weren't, it wasn't possible for me to continue doing them in the long term. And I would go through waves where I, again, the word sounds kind of has worse connotations than I want, but I failed at it. I, you know, couldn't stick to that exercise. I couldn't stick to those very restrictive diet patterns, whether that was force feeding myself to try and bulk up, or if that was trying to restrict to lose weight, you know, I couldn't stick to it. And I got this immense sense of shame and guilt when I couldn't adhere to those things. And also something I thought about recently, and I think I think something I experienced was an immense sense of grief for I felt like I'd lost that person that I finally had become. You know, I was been chasing to be this person my entire life. Finally, I'd made it for a week. And then, oh, I can't, I can't act it. I can't do this. I can't keep up with these things that everyone else seems to be able to do. So I'm weak. I'm not good enough. I'm this, that, and the other. And it got to the point in my second year of university where I had failed enough times and for long enough that I accepted that I don't deserve to be here anymore or more so that I'd accepted that it would be better for those around me if I wasn't here if I because I was just I was a burden you know I was this person who wasn't what they were supposed to be and therefore I should just not be here and I started to have these kind of suicidal ideations and suicidal thoughts and Luckily, one of my best friends had recognized that I hadn't been around for a long time. They hadn't seen me for a while and they came to my house and spoke to me and I ended up blurting it all out and they told me to seek help. And then things have kind of progressed from there. That's when I started my own minds and that's when I started this whole journey on what I'm on now. So yeah, I think I've kept that between two and 35 minutes. So hopefully success. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, no, thank you, George, for, you know, doing a great summary there, actually, of I think what was probably a very tumultuous journey, wasn't it? And, you know, that you were, you know, I'm sure that you're still on, as we all are. But what's so interesting as well is, you know, I think initially I was thinking you, you were sort of talking about you were in this sort of larger body, and then you obviously lost weight, and you received so much praise and validation for that didn't you which mm. I think you know still something that is just so toxic in our culture isn't it and how you know many people still do not realize just how detrimental that can be mm, absolutely yeah and you know like I said I don't think it's going to be I think everyone who's listening to this podcast who's had experience being in a larger body will recognize what I'm saying people constantly say, oh, have you lost weight? Or, you know, how's the, you know, people are constantly kind of aware of what you're eating and aware of how much you're moving or sitting or what you're wearing. At least that's what it feels like when you're in that body anyway. That's what I felt. Maybe that was some of my own anxieties coming out, but I think it's, you know, from people I've spoken to, I think it's kind of a commonly, a common feeling that people in those bodies can experience. Mm. And did you ever realize at the time that maybe your eating had become a bit disordered when you were sort of in that initial phase of the rapid weight loss and starving yourself and doing a lot of cardio? Did you have any alarm bells going off at that stage or did you think you were just being healthy? I think I thought I was just being healthy. I had an immense sense of I had this very kind of large sense of, I guess, arrogance is the word that I, I can use for this in that I was right, like the stuff I was doing, because I've always been very, you know, I'm doing a PhD now. I'm, I've always, I've been very 
inquisitive and I like reading about things and learning about things. And again, I think it wasn't maybe, I wasn't quite engulfed in the fitness world, but I was engulfed in the dieting and the exercising world to somewhat. And I was reading about it online and, and I just got to the point where, you know, everyone was talking about how losing weight helps all these health benefits. And everyone was talking about how exercise gives you all these health benefits. So I had this like, you know, almost unlimited amount of what I thought was evidence that what I was doing was right. And again, you know, the clinicians around me were all giving me praise to the point where, like mm. I said, one, one of them told me I should come and teach the other people yeah. how to do it. So I was getting so much yeah, positive feedback that I don't think it really crossed my mind. Or if it did, I think I would have then just been like, oh, well, you know, that's wrong because all these people are giving me this praise. So I can't be, I can't be wrong. Mm. yeah it's so helpful isn't it I think for you just even to say that out loud about almost you know looking back and realizing you almost had this sort of arrogance about it because Mm. of I guess you were so sort of validated weren't you the world was kind of reflecting back to you that you were doing the right thing and I think this is what's so confusing isn't it with eating disorders sometimes because of I think many people if they're really open and honest with themselves can recognize that maybe in the earlier stages particularly there maybe felt a sense of superiority or arrogance Mm. or on the kind of moral high ground that they were sort of doing the right thing they could perhaps do something better than other people and that's very seductive isn't it? Yeah and I think opening or facing up to that and recognizing that as a thing that you experience is really important because then you can start to question it. Because it's so powerful, you know, thinking that you're superior to other people is a real thing that a lot of us experience, especially if you have an eating disorder. You know, I'm no clinician, so I can't say for certain, but I know from all the people I speak to on my podcast and all the people that I've spoken to just through my lived experience work and different things. I think a lot of people resonate when I say that I just felt like I knew better than everyone else. And I felt like everyone else was just wrong. And I had that arrogance of if someone questioned me, you know, I always kind of like did an eye roll and like, yeah, all right, you just haven't read all the things I've read you don't quite get what I'm going for and you know I pushed away the rest of society into this world of they don't quite get it and again that was further I think exacerbated by the fitness community because so much of that at least the kind of hyper muscularity side that I was in but I think in general so much of that is about you know were the others, you know, in the fitness community, were the the term freak is a term of endearment in the bodybuilding community, you know, in the muscular, mm. the, the mus- hyper muscularity um, world, you know, we're freaks, we're so different from the rest of society, though they, they don't understand us. And that's so common in like these fitness worlds, and maybe not to that much of an extreme, but there's a lot of, you know, oh, your friend, you know, you'll see memes and videos of people saying, you know, your normal friends thinking what you're eating is weird but you there with your microwave meal and and stuff you know everything's about how you're different and that's good or you know you're superior because of that Mm, yeah no so it's so confusing isn't it so easy not to realize you have a problem so obviously when you were going into that sort of whole world I guess at some point you know as your research is very much showing that you were sort of like falling into perhaps muscle dysmorphia disordered eating and exercise addiction Mm. so yeah, I guess that how do people know when they're crossing that line? Because it's sometimes hard to know, isn't it? When is it sort of healthy and when is it becoming obsessive? Yeah, that's the ultimate question, isn't it? And I guess, yeah, I want to say here and that I am coming from a researcher perspective and a lived experience perspective. I'm not a clinician, so please don't say, you know, anyone think that I'm saying anything out of you know, yeah, from a clinical perspective, because I don't know what I'm talking about with that stuff. But what I do know is that what I think 
from the conversations I've had and from my experience, I think the line is very fine and it exists differently for everyone where this thing becomes a problem. And it exists differently for, you know, I almost have to give three explanations, one for the disordered eating, one for the exercise and one for the body dysmorphia. But I guess if I amalgamate them together, I think the main issue that I found was once it ties into your identity and once it becomes the sole aspect of your identity, that's where it becomes a problem. Because if you're building your entire life off of the idea that your body looks a certain way, you exercise in a certain way and you eat in a certain way, you know, a lot of things in life can happen to change that. Even just the way that your body just changes from the temperature and your body changes from the altitude you're in and the body changes from you know how you slept and how you whatever. So your body's always going to change and no matter what happens. And you know, so if your identity is built onto that, you're always, it's always going to fail again in inverted commas. And the same with food and with exercise, things get in the way. You know, we just had COVID, you know, that was a big get in the way moments, very extreme mm-hmm. version of it. But you know, little things are going to happen all the time that are going to get in the way of those things. So if it becomes who you are, that's a very dangerous place to be in. But again, you know, it's kind of infinitely complicated, isn't it? Because then am, am I saying that being a professional bodybuilder is inherently disordered and yeah, i did a, a whole podcast on this i've done two now pretty much so about it's about four hours in total of discussion about you know, whether this is the case so you know it's not something mm. that i can sum up sum up easily but yeah i think it's something to do with that idea of can you exist out of that identity and feel okay and i think often you people can find themselves in a position where that's not the case and maybe often is the wrong word but sometimes yeah, no, I think it's so interesting, actually. I was sort of thinking of Fairburn's work, Christopher Fairburn's work, where he sort of, you know, you draw out sort of pie charts of your identity and your worth, and you're looking at different mm. aspects of your life and how much of it is related maybe to work, you know, friendship, hobbies, or whatever. You know, like what you're saying here, when it's become, when how you look or your body composition or how you eat just becomes so tied to your identity, that is when it can become quite problematic can't it because it's it like you're saying it's really really hard to win when you're defining yourself so sort of on those very narrow variables yeah yeah and variables that can change through you know almost an infinite amount of ways there's so many things that can affect those variables yeah that you yeah i think at some point you start to build your life around your fitness world rather than building your fitness ideas around your life and yeah that because i think that's when it becomes a problem Mm. you were talking earlier as well you know like sort of starting off in your sort of you know rugby and all the rest of it and your sort of definition of how you perceived you needed to be to be masculine I guess and Mm. to have respect and be seen by your peers so can you say a bit about the link between masculinity and these different behaviors yeah so as we spoke about and I mentioned before my PhD is on muscularity oriented issues in men and a big part of that is is looking at these relationships between masculinity and these muscularity orientated issues and it's something that in the research that's been done it seems to be quite a common experience of men and this is particularly cisgendered men as well imagine and I've seen in some case studies that it also exists in trans men as well but maybe slightly differently and also in women in some of the stuff but that would take a whole podcast so I'll shut up there but <laughs> looking at men's experiences specifically what we tend to see and the paper I'm thinking of right now is by Dr Christian Edwards 
and then looking at masculine capital in men who have very high drive for muscle. So it's not inherently disordered, but it's very high to the point where the behaviors they're doing are probably, we could probably assume that they're disordered. What we often see in their life course analysis, so when the researchers asked these men about their life and got them to tell them about their life story, and what tends to come up is, and this aligns with my life quite well as well, is that when they're a child, they have some kind of old male figure that tells them what it means to be a man and what they're supposed to be as a young boy, as a man when they grow up. And then certain life events happen as they grow up that teaches them or makes them at least internalize that they're not that. So for me, it was being really tough, being able to kind of install fear into other people because my dad was a big rugby player he was you know he constantly used to tell me about stories how he'd you know split his eyebrow open in the middle of a game and they just put some vaseline on it and then he'd go back on and you know this idea of toughness and i used to get told all the time when we were down the pub when i was a kid all these very large men would come over and tell me how they were all terrified of my dad when he used to play and all these ideas you know, then that's where I, I saw his respect and you know i'm mm. not that I've never been that person. Like I said, I'm, I've always been very emotional. I wasn't overly tough. You know, I, I remember the first time I played rugby, someone tackled me and I cried and came off the pitch because I didn't want to play anymore. You know, there was multiple times when I was playing where I tackled somebody else and I hurt them and I cried and then I had to come off because I was like, I felt so bad that I hurt this other person. And yeah, I'd accepted and then these people accept that they're not that. So they feel there's this discrepancy. You know, the goal of masculinity is a hundred and they feel they're at a 10. And then what happens is they try and find a way to renegotiate that for themselves. And one way that people tend to do that is through these muscularity orientated behaviors. So people think that by having a big muscular body, as we tend to be shown in media in general, you know, on, in movies and TVs and, and all sorts, that having big muscles makes you more of a man or makes you the better man. You know, all the superheroes are all, you know, big arms, six packs, et cetera. And this idea of that. So, so people adopt these behaviors. And also then as well, the behaviors orient that you do to become more muscular are often painted as masculine as well, like lifting weights. And, you know, every Rocky movie, there's a montage of him lifting weights and muscles. And they're all filmed from the bottom looking up at him because he's so dominant and masculine and you know, all these connotations. So people take on these behaviors to try and renegotiate that. And the issue there again is that their identity is now consumed by these behaviors. I'm not what I'm supposed to be. These behaviors make me get closer to that. So I can't stop doing them. Otherwise, you know, I'm not going to be what I need to be anymore. And again, you, you become dependent on it. You know, same that we see with exercise dependency and compulsive exercise and those kind of things. This need to do these things comes out. And that's where, yeah, this kind of masculinity ties into that. Yeah, gosh, it's fascinating, really fascinating mm. stuff. So can I ask you, George, as well? Because I guess, you know, I think relationships with like father, sons, just generally with our parents, whatever capacity are so important, aren't they? Have you been able to sort of have conversations with your dad about sort of some of this? And like, you know, has he been sort of open to that? Because I guess he would have come from a very different generation. Mental health wasn't really talked about. So many different influences. Yeah, I guess I'm quite lucky in that, so my dad was, it's not really lucky, I suppose, but when I was a kid, my dad was struggling with these behaviors and he's also struggling with alcoholism quite badly throughout my childhood. And he ended up going to AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. Now he's been sober for, I think he's coming up to 13 years now. So 
he's doing considerably better now. And he actually now runs AA meetings and runs different things himself and helps people with addiction issues and different things all across kind of our local area where, where we come from. And he's, yeah, he's fantastic. And he talks about mental health all the time. So we're mm. now much better at talking about those kind of things. And obviously you know, my job now is mental healthy stuff. So I'm quite open about those things. But I would say, mm. I guess there is more that I want to talk to him about and there is more that I want to get into. But I think because a lot of my issues came from him and I don't think necessarily directly, I don't think he ever mm. said to me, you know, if you want to be a man, you should do this stuff. In fact, I have several memories of him and my mom telling me that it was great that I was emotional and that I didn't want to do these things because it was better because, you know, my dad had so many injuries and had so many issues because of rugby. And it was great that I didn't enjoy that that much. But everyone else in society itself told me that wasn't the case. You know, again, in films and things, you know, the hero was always had all these traits that my dad had and his, you know, that hero's kooky little sidekick tend to have my traits or, you know, the, you know, person that we would not, that didn't demand as much respect in that film or that TV show tended to have more of my traits. Yeah. And I think that's where it kind of came from. So yeah, I would, I would say I, I still want to work more on that and have more conversations mm. with my dad about that, but we're definitely much better than it was. Mm, yeah, well, it's incredible, actually. And, you know, thank you as well for sharing your bit about your dad's story as well. And, you know, sounds really inspiring as a family, all this, you know, mm. work you're doing in mental health. No, oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, my dad's amazing. He's one of my heroes. And yeah, he does amazing stuff. So I know something else that you sort of really acknowledge that is within the fitness community. It's quite difficult, isn't it, for people to seek help for these different behaviours, disordered eating, exercise addiction, muscle dysmorphia, you know, and they don't perhaps realise they have an issue. And perhaps can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. And I think one of the issues is this idea of exercise is, is medicine and quite rightly so, you know, I'm not trying to denounce that that's a thing. There is a lot of evidence that exercise is really good for us in lots of different ways. But I think what's missing is there should be a little, another sentence at the end of that that says, but it can also be a problem if you, you're know, doing too much of it or if you're relying on it. And I'm really proud that I've worked with Mind recently and we released a couple of films about developing healthy relationships with exercise and also some guidance on their website as well. If you Google Mind developing healthy relationship with exercise, you can see it. And there's some guidance for the public and for the physical activity and sports sector and all these kind of things around those things. But the general message isn't that exercise could be a problem. So that's one of the issues straight away. And then I think also that the issue that tends to come from these worlds, at least from the analysis that people have done on social media or the Fitspiration or, you know, kind of these muscle building websites, are some of the values that are pushed across. And often these values are something that I think aligns with the masculinity world that I was talking about. And I think is why these men that I'm researching are such an interesting population, because the fitness community also pushes the idea of pushing through pain and the enduring pain, you know, no pain, no gain is the most classic phrase of the fitness world. That is, you know, you're supposed to feel pain and it's a good thing. You're going to you know, push through that. And that's the same in the masculine world. They talk a lot about that and all the heroes do that. Also the idea of, you know, lacking emotionality and, you know, you shouldn't be, you know, you're weak if you show any kind of if you're struggling through an exercise compared to someone who's going through it with ease, 
So, you know, not having that kind of emotionality around it. And then the most kind of problematic one, I would say, that we see is the idea of, they call it battling the self in this article I'm thinking of, which is the idea that as a member of the fitness community, it's your responsibility that when your mind and body tell you you need to slow down or you need to quit, that you should push through that because it's just weakness leaving the body or it's, you know, all these phrases, again, this idea that, you know, if you feel something negative, it's just your body trying to stop you and it can go further and you need to push it further. You know, there's also the thing of like people say how the body can go so much further than the mind ever will and stuff like that. You know, your mind will try and get you to stop, but you have to keep going. And my, I guess my problem with that is that someone struggling with this and someone getting to that point and adhering to these thoughts and these values of this world and adhering to the values of the masculine community that are saying similar stuff is how am I supposed to know the difference between an emotion or even a physical condition that I'm supposed to battle through as it's my responsibility to as a member of this fitness or masculine community? Or you know, how am I supposed to tell the difference between that and something that I actually need help for because I can't get through it? I, you know, no matter how much I push through this, I'm probably just going to make it worse or you know, or it's just not going to change. And, and that's where I was at, where you know, I felt negative and I felt, you know, I felt down and I felt upset and I felt, you know, all these horrible feelings, but I just thought it was, you know, these thoughts and feelings that I was told I was going to get, but I was just being too, I was too weak to ignore them. And I just had to get the courage up to ignore them again and, and get back to the gym and get back to training and trying to get bigger because it was just that it was what all these people warned me was going to happen. So why would I bother getting help? Like I, you know, that was the point where I was supposed to feel this way. And that's where yeah, I think there's a lot of confusion and lead makes this population of you know, particularly the people that I'm looking at, these men with issues around masculinity, which is inherently, you know, we know there's so much research looking at the link between adhering to masculine values and not seeking help. So they're already in that world. And then they're in this fitness world with the muscularity side that are telling them you have to battle through pain to get bigger and to get, you know, stronger. They're in this perfect kind of cacophony of don't seek help because it's weakness and don't you you'd have to in order to seek help you have to go against everything that's surrounding you it's really almost impossible it's really difficult and it took me getting to the point where i was you know i'd accepted that i'm just not going to be here anymore i might as well not be here and then getting very lucky that one of my friends came and said oh maybe you should try this instead and then you know i was just i was at the point of you know either you know going with suicide or going to get help and I just thought, well, I might as well try getting help. And luckily I did. Mm-hmm. And can you say a bit more about that link between muscle dysmorphia and suicidal ideation? Because it sounds like you were sort of at that point where you were having those thoughts. But is there still mm. quite a lot of research on that? There's not a lot, but there's more now. And I think it speaks to what I'm talking about, how the I think you know, this particular group and one of the reasons why I'm so keen to research it and try and get this group more help is because I think they're kind of at the, they tend to be the people who are, I seem to think, I think anyway, or the research seems to point out, and again, there's not very much, but they seem to be very high risk for suicidal thoughts and suicidal behaviors. The very early research, one of the first ones was by Pope. I mean, he was the founder of Muscle Dysmorphia, but he did a research study where he basically just looked at men with muscle dysmorphia and men with body dysmorphic disorder. And so I've some seen some research that people with body dysmorphic disorder are already something ridiculous, like 45 times more likely to have attempted or to have like higher levels of suicidal ideation than someone without 
like it's someone without that medical mental health condition. So that's already ridiculously high. But in this study, they he also found Pope and, and colleagues found that they were the people with muscle dysmorphia were twice as likely to have attempted suicide compared to that body dysmorphic disorder group. So, you know, compared to a group that already a very high risk, they were even more high risk. And then more recent research as Ortiz, I think is how you pronounce their name. They've shown very kind of strong links between certain muscle dysmorphia symptoms and suicidal ideation and like suicidal thoughts and things. And then also some really recent research has shown, which is, which I think is really interesting and I haven't quite thought it through yet. So maybe we can, maybe we can discuss it here and think about it, but by Grunwald again, sorry if I'm pronouncing your name wrong. And their group found that, so they did like a longitudinal study. So for people who listen to the podcast don't know what that means, longitudinal study is basically where you do it over a longer period of time and you kind of take results, different time points to see how things change over time. And what they did with the group is they found that those who had eating disorder symptoms or higher levels of eating disorder symptoms, then later down the line had higher levels of suicidal ideation. So eating disorder symptoms tended to lead into suicide, which we've also seen in other research. So that's no surprise. But what they then found was that because people have seen, like I said before, in this research that muscle dysmorphia relates to suicide, but they weren't quite sure of which way that relationship went. And they, but then what they found was those people who had experience the high suicidal thoughts then or suicidal ideation then later on down the line at higher levels of muscle dysmorphia symptoms so what they thought or they hypothesized was that potentially these men were taking on muscle dysmorphia symptoms as a way to try and deal with their suicidal ideation that makes me think about this whole like masculine world and like you know toughness and you know maybe if they're feeling that desperation point they might reach out to something quite extreme like that or you know again i'm no clinician but i'm just thinking from my own mm. they might that didn't necessarily follow my path didn't necessarily follow that but yeah it's just interesting that it seems to be that kind of journey goes from the eating disorder symptoms to suicide symptoms to muscle dysmorphia symptoms so yeah i guess think of that what you will but yeah, really interesting links. We're not quite sure, I suppose, yet where it is, but it seems to be that kind of path. Mm, yeah, no, really interesting. And I think sort of not uncommon, is it, that I guess a bit from your own experience and, you know, research, I'm just thinking sort of anecdotally as well from seeing a lot of clients where they sort of start off more in that eating disorder world as well, but then it sort of transfers more to kind of fitness, wellness, getting lean. I mean, mm. I guess I'm thinking again, more kind of females here as well, but you know, it's across the board, isn't it? And then also really interesting, the link as well into that suicidal ideation and almost like the way to kind of feel better, isn't it? Some people feel like, you know, if they're looking a certain way, whether that's probably, you know, thinner or, you know, more muscular, they're going to mm. get that acceptance, self-esteem, temporarily boost self-worth, it's very seductive, isn't it? And then it's also validated by the culture. So again, people can think, you know, I'm the one that's doing something wrong here. I'm just thinking a bit when you were sort of talking about your journey in a way, when you were sort of feeling really low and down and not in a good place, but you were thinking in a way that it was because you weren't doing it right, whether you just needed to keep pushing through, but absolutely mm -hmm. that's not the answer. Yeah, so maybe it's that the muscularity world is promoting the idea that it's the answer to, you know, if you're, we're doing things right. So if you're mm -hmm. feeling down and you're not doing this, maybe it's because you're doing things wrong. So yeah, maybe that's something that, yeah, people could look into. Mm. 
So, of course, like, you know, for anyone listening who's sort of like is re- resonating with this and really identifying with what you're saying, I'm just thinking as well, like the issue then is like if you actually do reach out for help, going down a more sort of traditional eating disorder support route. I mean, I would imagine, you know, I know I work in the eating disorder NHS services and men are still massively underrepresented in the population that we see. And I think treatments are very sort of female, sort of centred often. So, yeah, I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on that? You know, like, where does someone go for help if they're struggling with these issues? Yeah, and I'm afraid my answer is probably not going to be the most positive thing, which is, you know, again, my research, you know, to be really specific, I'm actually looking at the care that's available for this group. And I'm basically, the, my first big study is going to be doing an analysis of the, I'm thinking currently the referral pathways so the kind of inclusion exclusion criteria of eating disorder services and also their like outreach documents so maybe leaflets and things like that that they put out to see kind of what the themes are in them and the reason i'm doing that is because from my own experience i used to work for i won't say we used to work for a big charity that helped assess eating disorder services across the uk and i've been to a lot of eating disorder services and overwhelmingly i would find that things were very feminized and, you know, again, I'm using these feminine and masculine terms, which, you know, there is a whole theory mm. around that. I'm, I'm being, I'm being very, I am being yeah. very stereotypical here. I'm just going to acknowledge that. I do mm. teach about these kind of things when I'm during my PhD and with some master's students recently. So I do understand they're more nuanced than this, but there's not enough time mm. in this, this podcast to probably explain those. But so just thinking stereotypically, these words tend to be very feminized and especially in the sense that, and it kind of makes sense because a lot of the patient population, as you said, tend to be people who identify as women and maybe identify with the like more feminine traits. And mm. often when I go into, when I used to go to wards and, and stuff, we walk into the patient lounge and it would be pink with butterflies and rainbows. And, and I'd say, oh, this is really lovely. You know, why did you decide to do this? And they say, oh, we let the patients decide like how it should look. And a lot of the patients were women and they decided this, which you know is fine. But the issue that I have from my own lived experience. And again, from what we've seen in the research of people who struggle with the muscularity variants of this tend to struggle with masculinity. And those masculine and fitness groups tell them not to seek help, whatever you do. So if I finally jump over this huge hurdle of my entire world is telling me, don't seek help because it's the least masculine thing you can do. You need to be here, be strong, be muscular, push through pain, you know, don't wimp out and go seek help. And then you go, you know, I'm going to ignore them because it's not that bad. Like it can't be as bad as what they, it can't be what they're saying. They can't be right. And then I walk into an eating disorder service and it's butterflies and it's bright pink and it's rainbows. And it's the exact opposite of this masculine thing that I was trying to adhere to. And again, being very stereotypical, but for me and for a lot of the people who are going down that traditional masculine ideal or trying to go towards that that's really scary and you know obviously in an ideal world what we'd say is is that masculinity and femininity don't need to adhere to male and female and they're made up concepts mm. and you know you should just accept whatever you feel like is what you should do and obviously that's in an ideal world but i often think 
when we take the option of, well, you know, these men just shouldn't adhere to these traditional masculine roles because that's silly and we're past that now. But that's like saying, from my point of view, that's like saying to someone depressed that they should just look on the bright side. Or, you know, it's like someone saying mm-hmm. to someone with an eating disorder, like, why don't you just eat a bit more or eat a bit less? Like, it doesn't work that well. Like, it's so ingrained and so internalized in these people's identities that actually if we you try and not embrace, but try, I guess embrace is the term. If we try and bring them in a little bit and say, look, you know, we're using words like strength and we're a bit more gender neutral and we're a bit more kind of accepting of anyone. And then we can move them towards these more, you know, less kind of binary and more kind of emotion focused ways of coping with things. And these things that they would be probably scared of doing because it's not quite as blunt. It's not just the now you've stopped. Now you're going to get help. You have to just give up everything you ever believed in or thought Mm -hmm. of. Let's let's guide them in. And I've kind of gone a very long, I've gone down a very big path here from your original question, which I think was about help seeking. (laughs) But yeah, I guess I'm kind of answering in a sense that I think things need to change massively. It makes it difficult for people to reach help. But then also, I'll show up in a second, but also with another part of this, which I think is something that a lot of people are calling on. And I think it's changing in some eating disorder services, or at least it seemed to when I used Mm. to go to them was that BMI was a thing that people would have, you know, you'd have to meet a certain BMI to get help. And I think there are certain services that are working against that now. But again, if you're in a muscular body, Mm. no matter how low body fat levels you get, you're going to be in a normal or even overweight or more body. And that's going to mean that you immediately just can't get help for what would be, you know, an eating disorder really, or something that you'd need to get help for from an eating disorder, from an eating disorder perspective. So you know, it makes it this incredibly difficult position to be in. So you know, part of what I'm doing with my research is I'm trying to highlight these gaps and hopefully come up with a, and write out an argument as to why services should be engaging in these things more and trying to help this group get help because I think actually it's gonna it's a big chunk of people that really need help. Yeah, no, thank you so much for sharing that, George. And I think you're doing incredible work by sort of doing the research, spreading the word, your podcast, you know, what a great resource, just kind of getting these messages out there, because I think people just need to hear these messages now, don't they? And I think people are generally much more receptive and open now. So the tide is turning, isn't it? Although there's a lot of work to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think people, you know, are starting to be more understanding of these kind of things and more people are coming forward with these kind of experiences. And yeah, so I think that's helping a lot. So, George, where can people find you? They want to find out about your research, your website, et cetera. Yeah, so you can, I think you can pretty much Google my name if you want to, which is George Mycock, which is a very embarrassing last name. Well, let's bring that to light. But yeah, you can Google my name or if you, yeah, Google Myominds, you can find the Myominds website, which is myominds.com or .co.uk works for the website. And then you can go through the social media channels there as well. You can contact me via the Myominds website or via the social media channels. You can also find me on the University of Worcester website, I think. I think they've uploaded my profile now, so you should be able to find me on there as well. And you can email me via my student email on that as well. Hey, fantastic. Well, I should make sure that all those details in the show notes. Well, thank you so much, George, for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, really appreciate your sharing. Such a lot of great information and wisdom in there. Yeah, just really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. 
So I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. Do go and check out all of George's info in the show notes. If you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at the eating disorder therapist underscore. And for further support with your relationship with food, do go to the eating disorder therapist.co.uk. If you enjoy this podcast, I would be so grateful if you'd follow, rate and review as it helps it reach so many more listeners. Thank you so much for listening today and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon.